Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. What's up, Fungal Associates? Welcome to Completely Arbitrary. This is the podcast about trees and other related topics. I am one of your hosts. My name is Alex Croson. And as always, I am here with Mr. K.C. Clap. Hello, everyone. Now, I worry when I say K.C. Clap, people will think your name is like uh, initials K.C. Oh, yeah, it's not. But your name is Casey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spelled with a C and A and S and E and a Y. I am Casey Clap. Yes, just the normal spelled out. Uh, let's say the OG version. Sure. Is that OG, you think? Did, was Casey invented before... People called other people by the acronym or rather the initials KC. I don't know because I feel like in the 1800s it was very common to have a, a, two initials for your first name. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. J.P. Pritchard. Yeah, something like that. And I, 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 I wonder if that's like an emphasis on family name, you know? Oh, yeah, right. Um, I don't know. That's a good, that's an interesting point. Uh, like, what was the convention then? Yeah, it could be an interesting topic for uh, somebody's Wikipedia rabbit hole. Ah, it's a gender neutral name of Irish and Scottish Gaelic origin. Ah, there you go. Mm-hmm, there you go. Well, Casey, I could talk about your name all day. Well, well okay. Well, anyway, well, let's, let's steer into that, Alex. But what? we got to talk about a tree today. In fact, we are talking about more than a tree. We're talking about a tree, an idea, and a man. And the tree is incense cedar. That's right. The incense cedar. How exciting. It is. It's very exciting. I do have, uh, well, I'll tell you about it later. Uh, I have a confession to make about it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, so. consider this your teaser. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. And today is part two of our conservation preservation talk in which we will be talking about preservation and more specifically, we'll be talking about the man who's, I was going to say started it all. Sure. Let's, let's, let's journalize it a little. Uh, The man who started it all, John Muir. Yeah. (laughs) But that discussion has to come after a break. We'll be right back with Completely Arbitrary. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued 
at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to Completely Arbitrary. Today we're talking the incense cedar in our part two on conservation and preservation. This is preservation, Casey. That's right, Alex. We ran out of air there. Are you okay? Do you need to take a breath? (sighs) Yeah. Well, Casey, today we're talking incense cedar. That's right, Alex. So let's imagine that you and I are walking through a, um, like a crystal shop. In Portland. Oh, interesting. And we, and we come across the uh, the incense section. And then I say, Alex, did you know there's a tree named about this? <laughs> there's a tree based on this incense. Uh, Casey, let's ID this tree. Let's do it, Alex. So this is a tree that is close to my heart. I think that it's close to my heart for a couple different reasons. One, I think it's gorgeous. B, it's like kind of underplanted. Hmm. It's getting more and more planted uh, every now and then. But it's kind of like... One of those things where you don't, you don't, it's not like wildly popular, but it's not unknown. Sure. So whenever you see it, you're just kind of like, oh, hey, all right, cool. That's great. I've certainly heard you know of it. I mean? Yeah. But, but I'm not like, it's not in the zeitgeist, I would yes. say. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not out of the zeitgeist. It's just a, it's a fringe zeitgeist tree. Exactly. But at the same time, you can't tell which fringe it's on. Is it on the inside of the fringe or on the outside of the fringe? It doesn't exist. Nobody knows, Alex. <laughs> so it's a tree that's native to this this lovely place we call home, Oregon. Oh, I didn't know that. It is. In fact, you can drive out to the, uh, out Highway 26 towards Mount Hood. Mm-hmm. And as you just get over the crest and start going back down beyond both of the passes that you go through. Um, there's a turnoff that goes down towards a town called Moppin. It kind of goes essentially due east from the east side of Mount Hood. And Highway 26 continues kind of further south, uh, south, southeast. Okay. Toward the, Bend and such. Exactly. Yes. And this is the northern extent of the population of mm. it. And I just drove that drive. And I just drove that drive maybe couple weeks ago. That drive. Oh, that drive. <laughs> I just drove that drive. <laughs> and we did it. I found a bunch of eucalypts. <laughs> Sorry, all of our Australian listeners. You're probably so upset. Um, so you can go right, uh, right past the northern limit of where you find these trees. Now, the instant cedar... Uh, in this instance, is on the east side of the Cascades. And as you kind of go south past Mount Jefferson, it kind of starts to come further to the the west side Mm. because everything kind of continually gets drier. And then as you go south towards the Siskiyous, its range really widens and it starts growing in the Klamath Mountains and the Siskiyou Mountains all the way through central and eastern central California. Oh, wow. In all those drier kind of mountain ranges around that central valley. That's quite a range. It is a significantly ranged tree. Wow. And interestingly, it grows kind of, it represents this interesting kind of cross-section of all the trees in the area, all the, the forest types, I guess. So all the way down the very south, it grows near the giant sequoias. Way high elevation in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and it's just 
kicking it. Mm. Then as it goes north, certain trees kind of drop away. You don't get the big cone Douglas fir anymore. You don't really get your giant sequoias. Then you grow up a little bit higher and now it's growing with red firs and the, uh, the kind of Southern Californian variety of white fir. And then as you continually go north, it becomes a part of the Siskiyou kind of flora and fauna where you get Jeffrey pine and a couple other different species. The red fir transitions to noble fir and then it continues up. And now you start getting with the larches and your Douglas firs and all these other like kind of changes that happen in the forest. Apparently the instant just doesn't really care. It just keeps on growing. That tracks for its personality that I that I garner from it. Oh, you okay? Yeah, I think so. It's pretty chill. It is. It's pretty chill, and but it also like just doesn't. It, it's not a tree that that's gonna like necessarily dominate the forest. Yeah, but it's not gonna be a a minor constituent. You okay, know? it's like a it's like a major supporting at character. Yes, it is the Brendan Fraser of trees. <laughs> well, I was gonna, okay. Yes, it's the best B-list tree you've ever seen. It's like a job of the hut, like <laughs> iconic. But he's really only in the movie for like twenty minutes. <laughs> I guess that's true. All right, yeah. By the way, I'm so sorry. Before we go on, pardon me. Calocedrus decurrens. Oh wow! Did we just skip over? We that? did. Like that a is a bunch the, of dunces. That is the binomial, the scientific Latin name that for this true. tree. So uh, that, of course, uh, means beautiful cedar. Did you know that? I didn't, but I love that. There you go. Love it indeed. And it, and it is, Casey. It's a it good-looking tree. And why is it good-looking? Well, it is the morphology, as we are now talking about. So this is a quintessential cedar tree. It's in the cedar family, in the cypress family. And it grows up to be a large, large tree. You can get over about 150, near probably 200 feet tall, but not 100% the tallest tree that you're going to find in a forest. It gets really big and massive, like really huge. I think um, some of the things I've seen have been like upwards of 12 feet in diameter, or maybe 10, Ooh. like really big trees. Certainly the ones that I have seen. Damn. And their bark is really gorgeously red a very common uh false cypress false cedar kind of thing anything yeah. in that cypress family they tend to have that kind of fibrous reddish looking bark this is a false cedar you said correct this is in the cypress family it is not a true cedar which is in the genus cedrus right 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 and it grows with these this kind of it's a very upright tree but its foliage kind of hangs vertically almost but also erect and i this is hard for me to kind of describe because it has branches and twigs that have scale like leaves so you don't see like twig and leaf they're all kind of the same thing mm -hmm. yet they kind of like come out almost either swept up or they they're held vertically so that your branches and your twigs kind of create this this sweepy looking appearance. Does that kind of make sense? I think so. Can it's, I see what I'm talking about? Uh, to me, it sort of looks like um, hmm, like it's holding a bunch of pom poms. Oh yeah, like these curved curved sort of branches that curve up a little bit, and then but, there's like a big bushel of foliage at the interesting. end. Interesting. Okay, yeah, but the, I guess and the, what I what I kind of would insist on including is that the pom poms themselves are not rounded they're not like poofs you know mm. like they're made up of flattened sprays that then create this pom-pom effect sure does that come is that yeah yeah, yeah track i got you yeah so they're they're really gorgeous in that regard because they have this kind of fantastic texture 
they look very pillowy, very cloud-like. To me, they just have a very like Western look. Oh, they look yeah. like a Western tree. That is perfect. It's a quintessential kind of Western tree. Yeah. Especially because it also grows amongst all these other Western trees. Mm. You name it. If it grows in this kind of middle cascade, upper Sierra area, this tree also grows with it. Cool. Like almost, almost to a T. So uh, as you get a little bit closer, you'll notice that the individual needles are in bundles. I shouldn't say bundles because that is misleading. Like a pine bundle? Exactly. Yeah. They are in groups of four. Okay. But because they're in that cedar cypress family, false cedar cypress family, they're oppositely arranged. So mm. they have two oppressed scale-like leaves on the top and then two on the side. Oh, yeah. So go going down the little stem. Yeah. It's like, uh, what, what, what do we call that? It's like um, perpendicular. Yes, yeah, exactly. The yeah, scales yeah, yeah. appear opposite perpendicular down the stem. Yes, and the term for that in Batani mm -hmm. is decusset. Decusset. Yes. I've heard that before. It's, uh, we've talked about it uh, in a few different trees, I believe, specifically probably other cedar trees. Yeah, I'm sure. And the thing about um, this kind of fashion of the tree is that it makes it look a lot like other trees that are also false cypresses. Your western red cedar, your Port Orford cedar, mm. that type of tree. Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth other one that we really have in the great Pacific Northwest is the Alaska yellow cedar. Hmm. So they're all very closely related in that they're in the cypress family. But the big difference between this and those, our instant cedar and the other false cedars, is that they have lighter green foliage, and the foliage on the sides, those kind of lateral um, scales, they kind of pop out a little bit, and then the next ones are nested kind of within that. Hmm. So they kind of look like they resemble a, a like stemmed wine glass or something like that. Interesting. That then is stacked on top of one another, stacked on top of one another yeah. all the way down the stem. So they have these like little flares that look like these little cups, cool. which I think are really fun. Interesting. Now those scales are pressed to the little twigs mm -hmm. and then they grow out and they don't turn brown at all in the wintertime. And I only bring this up because the western red cedar tends to do this, where in winter, the green, evergreen leaves kind of get a, a bit of a brownish, orangish tone to them. Casey, let's move on from the needles because I feel like we've been talking about them for 10 minutes. I could talk about them forever. It's just fine. But I really want to talk about the cone. I love that. The cone is really cute. It is. It's cute and it is it is silly. It's silly because it doesn't look like what you'd expect for a cone, mm -hmm. yet it is. It is the most adorable cone description also. And I, it took me a long time to like kind of understand how people were referring to it, but they would always call it a duckbill cone. Totally. And Okay, you see this right off the Absolutely. bat? Absolutely. What Describe it to me and tell me what it is. Like when, at what point is this cone like a duck's bill? Well, I, I'm also comparing it to my hands now. I'm I'm putting uh -huh. my hands up as if to be in prayer. Yes, with a little space between them. You do. Right? You look. You look. Look like. Look like you have like a like a little golf ball in your hands. Yeah, I'm holding. I'm holding my hands together, but I have a golf ball in my palms. Yes, right before you pray to the golf gods <laughs> that I make the shot. Uh, <laughs> so if you open up your hands at the wrist, uh -huh. there the, there there might be like a single. Okay, hold on. I'm backing up. I'm backtracking. You see? No, no, no. I can uh, do this. Uh, uh. It's like a cone, like a normal cone. Yeah. With like two scales. 
Okay. And those scales yeah. are on the outside yeah. and they kind of hinge open. Yeah. And it looks like there are there are probably four seeds in it. Um, I'm not sure, actually. I haven't seen exactly how many seeds are in each scale. Okay. I, w- I would assume that there are two in each scale and there appear to be two scales. Maybe there are more. But it is it just sort of opens like a book instead of like... Yes. Yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of like, uh, uh, say, a pine species cone, which has many little... Um, many little seats around this little coliseum where seeds sit. Yeah, this is just like a book that opens and seeds fall out. There you go. That is that. I think that's fair. That's and when accurate. It's, when it's closed, it's sort of the shape of like a mango. Oh, or see, an avocado. I, I've always thought of an almond. Yeah, sure. Yes, but specifically the thing that we eat, almond, not the actual yes. fruit, which doesn't look anything like this. Yeah, exactly. So this is the actual almond itself. So this almond-shaped cone. Yeah. So, okay, perfect. I, I, I see it. It does look like a duck's bill, but it's one of those things, whenever I described it, like, yeah, it looks like duck bill. I just kind of blindly said whatever somebody else said to um, me without actually considering, like, does this, what does a duck's bill look like? Well, it only looks like a duck's bill when it's open. Yes. When it's closed, it just looks like an almond. So that is what the cone looks like. I adore it. This is also a tree that has pollen cones that are just about now getting ready to release their pollen. They release their pollen in the middle of winter. So if you are in, say, January, February, uh, I think it looks like they're getting ready. I saw a bunch earlier. Uh, Like right now, true cedars, Chinus cedrus, Mm -hmm. they're just now letting their pollen cones go. Really? Yeah, so they're getting they're getting warmed up, they're getting ready to go. They do it in the winter time. They pollinate in the winter time? Yes, by the wind. How mm-hmm. wacky. Yeah, very wacky. Now, as these cones open up, as you noted, they kind of open up and they look almost like uh, two-sided bells or something that drop out these adorable little seeds. Mm -hmm. They then will fall to the ground and kind of cover the ground. They're very hard and woody. Uh, You're not going to find them kind of like easy and and look like cones. You can kind of go, oh, look at that. That's a cone. It's going to look like some weird appendage that's fallen off. Oh, weird. Then you can notice uh, them hanging up there. There'll be some that are hanging that are spent, some that are hanging that are new for the next year. They'll be littering, littering the ground underneath. And you will notice again the gorgeous bark. The thing about the bark of the incense cedar is that the incense cedar's bark is furrowy and fibrousy and reddish brownish all at the same time. Hmm. So they are very fire adapted species. They have this big thick bark and fire can come over and get all around it and it's not going to hurt the tree. Okay. Now, Alex, this tree grows in some places that I love to visit. Hmm. Specifically, it grows in some wilderness areas uh-huh. down in Southern Oregon, Northern California, and national parks throughout the same space. Talking like the Klamath region? Exactly. Okay. There are many of these growing in one of my favorite places to visit, which is the Rogue Umqua Divide Wilderness. Wow. There are also some in an area called the Red Buttes Wilderness. And that is in Northern California and Southern Oregon. They also grow in the Siskiyous, in the Siskiyou Wilderness, the Calmeopsis Wilderness, and um, other wilderness areas in this area that I don't even know about. Marble Mountain Wilderness. Mm. I've also seen them in the Russian Wilderness. Ah, yes. Well, so you'll notice, you'll notice, uh, Sir Alex, that all of these places, oh, I should also note, there are some other wilderness, quote, wilderness areas that we call national parks. Yeah. 
uh, Yosemite National Park, mm-hmm. Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Park, and uh, I think actually you might be able to find some of these trees in Lassen Volcanic National Park. I think it's something like that is okay. what it's called. Well, Casey, what do all these places have in common? Well, Alex, all these places have in common is that they are preserved wilderness areas. Ah, there's the rub. Interesting question, sir. So, I also need... This is my confession. Oh, now. wow. I racked my brain to try to find a really good tree that I could use as a an example mm. of what we're talking about today. Right. And every single one I came up with, we've already covered. Oh, wow. The white bark, or the... Yeah, the white bark pine. Great example mm-hmm. of a tree that we are trying to preserve. We've already done it. Right. The bristlecone pines, the sequoias, the redwoods, done them. So is the incense cedar kind of not one of those trees that we're trying desperately to preserve? Yes. You know what, Casey? <laughs> I think that's okay. This is uh, this is going to be a an example of of us saying, "Hey, so here's a tree, and now we're going to talk about something that is." Eh, related to it it's pretty broadly related but you know what we'll do broadly related we're gonna give me a chance to to really sell it don't worry about that (laughs) i don't want you to be uh, nervously trying to tie a bow on this whole thing all right all right Uh, it's good that that you bring it up early on say you know what uh, this this episode really isn't about the incense cedar. Tem- temper your expectations here, people. <laughs> you always should temper your expectations. <laughs> yeah, you should. Don't don't give us too much here. Uh, so these places, as you so uh, sagely asked, are all wilderness areas. Okay. In a in a technical sense, wilderness preserve. I've heard that term. Yes, and that's that's fair. Wilderness preserve. I think is it's a bit of an old fashioned term. Oh, you know? interesting. We don't really use the term preserve anymore. Okay. Like it is more of a designated uh, like means. A space preserves something. It can also be a preserve or a preservation but there's not really a preservation like a reservation yeah you know? so it's it's kind of an old-fashioned term okay it, but it, it it does it does work the idea being that you have something that is being preserved in perpetuity in some form okay it's the broadest way i can kind of describe okay it. so, so with no plans of like uh, by in perpetuity, you basically mean like there's there's no future plans to like harvest anything from this area. It's yeah. just like until further notice, this is a protected space. Don't do anything with it. Exactly. You can walk through it. You can look at it. And yeah. that's it. So you'll recall last time we talked about the idea of conservation. Mm-hmm. And you came up with uh, without any uh, without anybody like saying, hey, Alex, say this. This is true. You'd exactly describe conservation versus preservation. Yes. Can you give us a real quick roundup of what you said? I would love to. So conservation is when uh, you have a you have a nature area yeah. and you say we want to harvest this area for its natural resources, Mm -hmm. the trees, um, for wood. But we don't just want to cut them all down and move on to the next place and Uh forget about it. We want to replant these trees. We want to conserve this land while still harvesting its goods. Yeah. Preservation is saying, no, 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 no. You don't even harvest the land. You just protect it. Yeah. For its own sake. It has intrinsic value beyond wood, right? Yes. Perfect. It is the use of by and for humans as opposed to 
just not existing really. because it's it has a right to exist. Yeah, exactly. And this was the con- the idea of conservation was really championed by the character we introduced last time, yes. Gifford Pinchot. Gifford. Gifford Pinchot, which is a funny thing where the guy's name is actually just two last names. You know, like there's people with two first names. Yeah. He's two last names. That is interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kathy Gifford Pinchot. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I love I love uh, uh, Natalie Portmanteau's. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, so, so Gifford Pinchot, um, he's kind of famous for being the first leader of the brand new National Forest Service. Yes. Which is underneath, and this is, this should make a lot more sense to everyone now, the Department of Agriculture. Mm. So the USDA mm. Forest Service. Why ever would this be underneath the agriculture place, underneath the people who are actively managing land for growing food, for growing crops, for harvesting things? Because... We are managing this land to harvest things, and those things are trees. Exactly. Or, broadly speaking, natural resources. Okay, so the forestry, does that include, like, mining for coal and shit? Yeah, or just whatever things happen to be there. Maybe you just need a mine for a certain kind of rock Mm -hmm. that is, you know, used in gravel. Maybe it's a certain kind of ore that has uranium in it or something Mm. like that. You know, there's lots of different individual um, ores and mines and gems and things that we use that are a fun, fundamentally rocks, right? Yeah. So in underneath the very first kind of description of what the Forest Service did, you had Gifford Pinchot saying, well, essentially, our job is to manage the natural resources of the nation for, quote, the greatest good for the greatest number for the longest time. Time. For the greatest good, for the greatest number, for the longest time. Yes. This was Gifford. This is Gifford. This okay. is old Pincho. Got it. And it is, it's a really good, like that's, that's fundamentally a nice idea. Don't you yeah. think? Yeah. The whole idea is saying, yeah, we're going to use these natural resources. But the issue is by saying these are natural resources, you have some built in assumptions and some built in kind of uh, predications on it mm. where the, the built-in assertion there is that it is a resource, right? So if something is a resource, it must be a resource for something, which means it's the nation's natural resources, which means that it's our nation's resources for us to use. And I think because you and I have a, a tree podcast, oh, people huh. assume that you and I are like hardcore preservationists. They very, very potentially are. But... It's been said before, you and I are both pro uh, logging, like yeah. if it's done responsibly. It's a, it is a renewable resource. Exactly. If, as long as we keep planting trees responsibly after we log them, we're not going to run out. I, I'm so happy you brought that up because that's essentially us saying we are conservationists. Yeah. Which is something we also brought up uh, last week uh, as a, uh, a funny thing that all the intense Republican uh, strategists have also said. Republicans are conservationists, not preservationists. Right. And that is because the use of the natural resources is a good thing. It is, it is something that we need to function as a society. 100% agreed. Now, I don't think that 
uh, Gifford Pinchot would would disagree with the idea of preservation, and I don't think that the new character we're introducing today, which ah. probably needs no introduction, John Muir, would be against conservation. It's more of a matter of scale. So I conservation, see. Alex, that you uh, that we just kind of discussed, that is, yes, let's use our natural resources, but it would be, according to Gifford Pinchot, something more on the European side of it, where every bit of their land, essentially, if it's accessible, is used for making forests, for mm. uh, managing as a crop or as something that is being used for and by people. Even a place that wasn't originally a forest? Yeah, exactly. They would say, hey, well, you know what? This is not very good land for growing this crop, so let's just plant it as, tr- as trees, uh-huh. and then, boom, we can cut that down. Okay. But they also manage their forest very specifically to say, well, we have this forest. We need to take out only a certain amount of wood and grow a certain amount of wood to replace what we're taking on this kind of schedule so that we know we always have it. Yeah. And we here in the United States have forestry schools. I have a degree in forestry. In the whole you idea. do? I do, Alex. A lot of people don't know this about me. I, uh, I got a degree in forest management. One of your six degrees? <laughs> well, yes, 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 yes. I do have them on my wall. Through this degree, I learned lots about how we manage forests, essentially for, why well, I've always just said we manage forests for money, which is really what we do. It's what it all boils down to. Sure. But on, on the other side of that coin, you could say, no, we're managing it for the natural resource that is wood. So what we would do in the United States, according to Gifford Pinchot, is we would use all of the resources out there, all the forests, in order to turn them into wood that we can then use and create an economy and have all the wood in the world that we could ever need to run our country. Mm. Superstar, big thumbs up, let's make it happen. But where these two differed is that Gifford Pinchot would say, conservation, let's use it. That's what it's there for. Muir would say, there are some places that we should not touch at all. Sure. So then he started talking about the idea of preservation. Mm. Now, Gifford Pinchot is kind of an interesting character. He is Scottish-born, came over to the United States and moved to California and started going out and created this his own kind of land ethic, his own kind of experience with nature based on religion. He was a Presbyterian. Now, he would kind of change more of what his religion was to say that this is God's creation and it's perfect and beautiful and it should exist. So he kind of had this... He kind of mixed his religion into a religion of nature. Whereas the traditional, like, I'll just say Christian idea behind nature, or biblical idea behind nature, Mm -hmm. is that we have dominion over it. Exactly. It's there to be used. Right. Yes, exactly. Interesting. So he also was a huge proponent of protecting wilderness areas. And that is where these two people came together with like both immense kind of uh, ethical ideas of how the land should be used Mm. and managed. So Muir specifically was all about Yosemite, the Yosemite Valley. 
Now, the Yosemite Valley is famous because it is in, of course, Yosemite National Park. The only reason Yosemite is a national park is because John Muir was like, this needs to be a national park. Wow. And he wrote a bunch of articles about it and sent it out and got Congress to say, oh, yes, you're a national park now. He does strike me as an essayist. Yes, yeah, he does. He has quite a bit of uh, of writing under his name. And he also, um, whether I should say that this national park used to be a state park in California before it was then uh, turned into this like next level. And one of the things that was included in this national park is still to this day is a second valley that very few people know about. Hmm. This is the valley called Hetch Hetchy, the Hetch Hetchy Valley. Hetch Hetchy. Yeah. You ever heard of it? I have. Yes. Is this where the the big rock face is? No, no, no. That's all in the Yosemite Valley. You're thinking El Capitan or yeah, Half Dome, yeah. those mm-hmm. things? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's all in the Yosemite Valley. Okay. Now, the Yosemite Valley and the Hetch Hetchy Valley are essentially the same valley. One's just a little bit further north, and they both are underneath, or rather between, these big, giant granite cliffs. Wow. And those giant granite cliffs have this river, I believe it's called the Merced River or something like that. So these two valleys are inside of the national park. The reason that most people don't know a lot about Hetch Hetchy is that Hetch Hetchy is no longer a valley that can be accessed. It is a reservoir behind a dam. Oh. Inside of our national park. Now, a reservoir is... Wonderful for plenty of reasons. People can use that lake as a lake and they can mess around with it. And usually it is held, uh, the water is held back for a couple different reasons. The first being power generation. You want to build a dam so that you can then have hydropower. The dam holds back the water. The water then builds up pressure and it goes through turbines and it spins and now you have electricity. Mm -hmm. You also want to hold back water for flood control. If The Willamette River here in the Willamette Valley in Oregon has like eight dams, 13 dams, like some crazy amount of dams on the river, especially as you go further down and it splits into one or two different um, uh, individual forks. Those have their own dams on it. I'm thinking like Oregon City. There's a dam in Oregon City, right? There is not a dam in Oregon City. That's just the falls. Oh, Yeah, we did build a giant paper mill on it and move the water around, and now there's a locks there so that you can get up to the next level, but it's not dammed. Okay. The dams on the Willamette River are way further down, like beyond Roseburg kind of thing. Oh, okay. Further, further down. Got it. Now, these dams are put there for flood control so that we can essentially keep track of how much water is going through the river at any point in time, release some, hold back some, Mm. and like meter it out so that down here in Portland and the rest of the valley, we're not going to get inundated by floodwaters without us knowing. Because as I recall, the Willamette Valley at one point was like a floodplain. Yes. And during the winter would just get like, like a giant lake. And then dry out during the summer. Exactly. Now, it wouldn't be so cut and dry. There's definitely a channel where the river would be flowing, but it would overflow its banks very often and come back. So it wasn't that the whole valley was one giant lake. It's very, very wide valley. Mm -hmm. But it would be big enough that the valley would, uh, that the, the river itself would overflow its banks and become much wider and then go back down. Then go wide, then go back down. So another reason to have a dam is for water to drink, and this is why Hetch Hetchy was made in the first place. That was the biggest reason, is that San Francisco, this adorable little town on the coast, 
needed more water. Mm. So they, San Francisco, wanted all this water because at the time they had kind of a very old-fashioned water system where they were like getting it from certain lakes and streams and areas that were around their city and further north, but it didn't have access to enough water for the size that the city was becoming. Mm. It was becoming very unsanitary. Okay. So they said, hey, uh, there's this beautiful valley that we could use and put a dam on it and turn it into a great, great reservoir for our use. And that is the upper Hetch Hetchy Valley Ah. that's in Yosemite National Park. There you go. So in the early 1800s, some people said, hey, let's, uh, let's put a dam right on this river in the middle of this national park. And everyone read John Muir was like, uh, hell no. What the hell are you talking about? This is a preserved landscape. It's not to be used. It's to be preserved exactly how it is. So this was after that legislation had gone through. Yes, this is after. In fact, this is some 20 or 30 years after the whole area was turned into a national park. Okay. All that to say, the John Mears of the world would say national parks and preservation area. The conservationists, the Gifford Pinchos, would say national forests. Use those. Make use of them for whatever reason. And this is ultimately where you can trace the two lines of this kind of idea or these two ethics down is to this exact issue in Hetch Hetchy. Mm, wow. With this whole area. Ooh, this is like the catalyst of this whole it, thing. Yes, exactly. Cool. I now, like this. It's this is like bit, a movie case. Oh yeah, you could make this into a movie. In fact, as I was typing up my notes, I was like, why hasn't no one made this into a movie? Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, you're, you're exactly right, where this is like this big crux of like, who is going to be doing what, which way are the people going to go? Yeah. And I believe, and I know this from reading uh, things about Gifford Pinchot, he would not want the the just wanton destruction of our forests. His whole point was keep them for as long as we can for the greatest number of people, for right. the greatest good, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he was actually like a voice of reason yeah. in a world where people were just like cutting and burning and moving on. Yes, and last week you talked about there's a spectrum where you have mm-hmm. the John Mears on one side, you have the insane, just uh, money-grubbing, barren capitalists yeah. on the other side, right. and then you had this voice of reason, this conservationist in the middle. Yeah, Totally agree with that sentiment. And the the side that I think is really interesting here is the John Muir has this ethic that is kind of problematic in two ways. Mm. One is John Muir always imagined wilderness as untouched, unmolested, unaffected by civilization. Casey put air quotes around that. I did. Because he was talking about white man's civilization. Right. White man's civilization was different than Native Americans, but also Native Americans were still humans and they shouldn't be in a wilderness area. Mm. So his wilderness idea, his his ideal that he had in his brain is, is, is these two different sides. Your preservation of untrammeled land, which is literally in the Wilderness Act, it's land untrammeled by humans is untrammeled. the exact term. Okay. Yeah. Why do they choose these dumb words? Not, I don't know. Not trampled. No, trammeled. Trammeled. Yeah. Okay. So that is just innately wrong right off the cusp Mm -hmm. because in Hetch Hetchy specifically, there were plenty of people that lived there, the Paiutes and 
Miwok Indians, Miwok Indians, excuse me, uh, those tribes live there either year round. Well, not in Hetch Hetchy. Hetch Hetchy is actually uh, too cold and there's a little tiny outlet for the river. So it would then often get too wide and you couldn't get up into the valley. Mm. Great place to have a dam, by the way. Tiny little outlet, little <laughs> tiny dam, big wide reservoir area in the back. So Muir was even against like native peoples living on the land yeah, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with the land. Yeah. Well, he, he basically got there and started hanging around by the time these people were kind of kicked out mm. because in 1849, you'll recall there was a giant gold rush Yes, famous because of the now, uh, Mm. Famous because of the uh, American football team, the 49ers right. of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So that is 1849. All these things that we're talking about happened later in the maybe 1880s, 1890s, and 70s, all through into the early 1900s when the dam was actually made. Okay. So the native peoples that lived there started to get kicked out when all these other different people would come up and start maybe ranching in the valley. They would, uh, they would bring their sheep into the Hetch Hetchy Valley, and the sheep would just go around and eat almost everything. Mm. In fact, I believe Muir called sheep uh, uh, furry locusts or something like that, <laughs> maybe hoofed locusts. Oh, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> so he, he, didn't, he didn't like anything in there. He saw it very much mm. as nature at its most perfect Without that's, any humans. That's pretty radical. Yeah, especially for the time, right? I, especially for the time. And I I, I've, I think I've kind of romanticized John Muir from the little I know about him. Most but, people have. But now I'm like, well, that's a little far. Yeah, and you know, and he, he was not a perfect person. Uh, there's a book that um, we actually got sent by uh, Patagonia. At the very beginning, it opens up and talks about John Muir, and it says, a note about John Muir. Uh, and they are they, they say, hey, this is a good guy. He had these great ideas, and we laud him for that. But at the same time, he had these mixed ideas about Native Americans. Sometimes yeah. he would be like, yeah, Native Americans, they're, they're the perfect people. They live with nature. Then other times he'd be like, eh, you guys can just kind of get out of here, and, and we can have this. This will just be nice and protected. But he was you also, he, he maybe didn't, he maybe didn't say that out of racism, he he pro- he was he thought that about everybody. Yeah, I right? think that's I think that would be a fair description. Okay, because they would be using the land for their own good, and the way they have for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, he didn't say, uh, "You indigenous people move out so that we uh, white people can move in." He just yeah. said, you guys move out. Okay, now it's perfect. And now, exactly. Now we're just going to protect it the way it is. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of the first issue. But still. It, it, <laughs> but still. But still. It's, so it's kind of, that's the first issue that kind of comes with this idea of preservation. Yeah. And this is the idea of kind of if we bring it back up to our modern day, what are we exactly preserving? Mm. You know? So which time are we preserving it in or for or as? What? So everything is always rate. It was always based on time. Is that was that too confusing? Yeah. <laughs> well, damn it. Sorry. The idea, Alex, is whenever we're preserving something, mm-hmm. we're preserving it as it is, uh-huh. or as we think it should be at a certain time. At a certain time. Yeah, yeah. But as you are probably quite familiar, forests and the natural systems, natural spaces are not in stasis. Mm-hmm. They are not just not doing anything. They're right. constantly changing constantly. and evolving. Species grow up, and, oh my gosh, is Casey about to wrap this back into his tree? Wow. Yes. 
our tree Holy today. God. He did it. He <laughs> I want to wrap the plot. Yes. All the kids are crying in their classrooms right now. It's like watching someone go to the moon. I take my hat out. off in disbelief. So <laughs> watch the shuttle rise into the yeah. sky. So if we preserve the spaces right now yeah. that are growing incense cedars. An incense cedar is a tree that grows in mostly drier spaces. So if we mm. are growing them up, you see where I'm going with I, this? I do. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. Please. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, please. So I hope everyone else out there is like, oh, yeah, yeah. Please continue. If a fire comes through, yeah. kills them, then they are no longer there. And now we are preserving a space that used to be a forest that is now regrowing. Mm-hmm. Have we preserved a forest or mm. have we preserved a space that is going to be a forest again? Right. Here's another example. This is a tree that grows in full sun. It does not prefer shady areas. If you plant it, or rather if it's growing in a forest area, and there is a, let's say, Shasta red fir growing right next to it, and a white fir that's growing right next to it. These are both more shade-tolerant species that over time would grow up and take over the dominant space and then end up shading out incense cedars. Okay. So then, if there are no fires, the incense cedars conceivably will kick the bucket because they're going to get shaded out, forest succession is going to take over, and you're going to have the dominant tree species take over the whole forest canopy. This could take 500 years, yeah. so it's very unlikely that we're not going to have a fire. Uh, yes, yeah, very unlikely that we're not going to have a fire, but let's just say, because people recently have been you know, pretty good over the last couple hundred years, uh, thank Gifford, stopping forest fires. So, all this to say, if we are preserving the incense cedar, then in order to preserve the incense cedar, we need to manage the land to preserve the spaces and the existing trees where they are. Mm-hmm. Great. But hold on. If we're managing something, is that preserving it the way that it is, the way that it should be? And how are we deciding the way that it is the ways that it should be? Right. And if we're not going to have any humans in there whatsoever, then what about the management of Native Americans? And this is something I think we can give John Muir a pass on. I don't think he was of a time that they understood. I mean, Christ, we're barely at that time today of understanding and acknowledging the role that Native peoples across the entirety of the continent played in the landscape that we saw when we first had colonizers come over and say, well, look at these beautiful park-like areas. This is very convenient. It's like, well, that wasn't just like the trees didn't happen to magically grow like Mm -hmm. that. So you you had this kind of this this these circular things that that we have kind of coming up against. We can preserve something, but what exactly are we preserving it? To what ideal are we choosing and why? And B, if there are no people there, then are we actually preserving it or is it just like transitioning to the next thing? Sure. You know, like I, I it's kind of hard to, to to even dive into it even further. I feel like there needs to be a third goalpost here mm-hmm. that's like not conservation, not preservation, but like a third thing. Yeah. And it's like nobody fu- like build a build a medieval wall around this forest yeah. with no gates and just 
walk away. Wow. And just let it do whatever it's going to do. Because preservation, obviously, you need, like you said, you need some management. And then like how, how much management until, how, you know, and uh, when do you say, well, we're, not, we're no longer preserving it. We're like managing yeah. it and conserving it. Exactly. Because um, if, you, if you're preserving it, then theoretically you should preserve that space to do whatever that space is going to do. Like exactly. you're saying with this wall around it. Including having a forest fire. Exactly. Um, yeah, then do you go in and put out the fire? Well, then you're not really preserving because fire is a natural part of the landscape. Natural part of the landscape. And it's only after we started fighting fires where we thought we were demonized forest fires. Yeah, in the people who started them yeah. most of the time. Um, interesting, Casey. Yeah. So the... the I, I, think I, I, think I, get, I think I get where you're going. Yeah. John Muir and Gifford Pinchot, mm-hmm. white devils... <laughs> Thank you, Alex. I'm glad you finally said it. That's been our discussion on the incense eater. <laughs> well, essentially, that's kind of the uh, that is kind of the end of it. Um, where with these two these two ethics that these people have come up with, the questions really become what what exactly is the right one? You mm. know, and if we are preserving something like a wilderness area, which is by far my favorite places to go in the entirety of our like national system of land use. I like them because they don't have any roads in them. You're not going to hear any cars. There's nobody that's going to be driving a uh, a gigantic bus size RV through them mm-hmm. and playing music and laughing and turning on their generators. I don't want anyone laughing in my wilderness areas. <laughs> it's where we can go where it really feels like nature. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there are some people who have even argued fly airplanes around them. And is it ethical oh. to save somebody who's gone into a wilderness area by flying a helicopter in yes you know what i mean <laughs> hey i'm not making an argument one way or another but i'm just saying people are this is a discussion like how far are we going to take this yeah do you want to make this wilderness a wilderness it's important that john muir existed yes and thought the way that he thought because in history if history teaches us something it is that um for things to change you need radical people mm-hmm. who are like the fucking anarchists, you know, who are yeah. like, no, 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 you're so, you know, everybody's doing it wrong and you don't even have an idea of how to do it right. Mm. Where you might go, well, geez, that's pretty fucking extreme. But without that extreme, we yeah. can't take just a, a half step back and say, well, what if, what if we kind of met halfway, yeah. which is still progress. Yeah. Right. So John Muir brought us progress, even though he had some pretty fucking extreme ideas. Yeah. yeah. Um, which we need in this world, Casey. I think that is a very good way to wrap that up. Yeah. Because I think that is that that pretty much gives us a nice little bow on top of it to say rather to kind of leave it to everybody else to really have this discussion of what is the right method and if the right method if there is not a the right method then what is the right methods and Mm -hmm. how are those balanced with each other and i think we're trying as the united states of america today to really figure out what that balance is what should be a wilderness area what should be conserved forest area for many 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 different uses what should be area that has a specific industrial use for whatever it is that we're trying to use it for, whether that's logging for our trees or for something else. Mm-hmm. So we have these kind of 
that big side of it where it's all on it's on a spectrum, but I don't like necessarily using the spectrum. I almost like having more of a, a pyramid of idealism maybe okay uh but then that still like it does leave certain things and people out where if we have this the very tippy top like i said earlier if that is the national park then should that national park be able to be used by people who have had their ancestors historically use that space for something right shouldn't that be included in that or are we preserving it just after the native peoples got kicked out and just mm. before we turned it into an industrial forest. Well, Casey, I'm very I'm very glad that you and I are not the decision makers on this. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe we should be. Mm. Casey, I'd like to end this discussion with a quote from John Muir. All right, yeah, yeah. In every walk with nature, one receives far more than he seeks. How beautiful. And of course, I found this quote painted on the side of a bathroom at Disneyland, <laughs> California adventure. <laughs> that was our discussion of the oh, incense cedar. Geez. We got to take a break, but we will be right back with completely arbitrary. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but skims has changed that, you know, I love skims underwear. So I finally tried their bras and skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Casey, it is time to review this tree. And here's how it works. We're going to give some final thoughts on this tree or some initial thoughts and then give it a rating of zero to 10 golden cones of honor. Casey is a resident preservationist. Uh, we will start with you. Thank you, Alex. It so happens that this tree, I believe, should be preserved and conserved. Nice. Mostly the big ones that are amazing and the places where they are currently growing that are already protected or in like national forest areas that really haven't been cut. I think we should keep those just the way they are. This is my big thought about preservation versus conservation, where I think we need a little bit of everything everywhere. Mm. Uh, we are going to have a discussion on the ethics of preservation, but that's going to be a side project that we're going to put on our Patreon cool, or whatever subscription service we use. Oh, and so that is something that's going to have to wait. You're going to have to find that elsewhere. However, um, we did touch on that enough to where I think I can safely say that there's a there's a spectrum of maybe a hierarchy of what it should be. Yeah. And this tree, the instant cedar, I think specifically, should be used uh, in both in some specific ways. The areas that it is growing down in southern Oregon, the Siskiyous, these places where the trees have never been cut and they're massive, big, giant, beautiful things, those need to be retained and saved forever. They're yeah. incredible. The cool. trees will blow your mind. These are those like 15-foot diameter trees. Yeah, yeah, okay. the, the big, giant ones. 
Maybe not quite 15 feet. That might be it's like a 30 little or bit. 40 feet. Yeah, it's essentially it's, it's bigger than the redwoods. Wow. Yeah, you heard it here. <clears throat> um, but then if this is also a tree that many people don't know was used heavily for pencils. This is a very classic Dixon Ticonderoga number two pencil. No kidding. Yeah, it's that, right. it is that wood. So whenever you have that wood, the kind of softness of it, the mm-hmm. smell of it, the cedar-y, cedary smell. That's an incense cedar. It's an incense cedar, exactly. Cool. What about mechanical pencils? Are those Ooh, also incense cedar? It is not. Those are not actually, <laughs> Alex. I'm sorry. Yeah. Incense polymer? Yeah, it's an incense polymer. They just put a little bit of, little bit of oil, a little bit of essential oil <laughs> in there. Mm, mm, <laughs> smells great. So these trees are like, they're really good. They're useful. They are decay resistant. They have beautiful wood. They are uh, soft wood, so it's easy to work with. Yeah. And it is just a lovely decay resistant piece for the, the things that you use like cedar chests for, you know? Like it has that scent, that smell that keeps moths away, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. So they're a tree that should be preserved in certain instances, should be conserved and used in other instances. And gosh dang it, it's just a beautiful tree. Wow. They do so well in the urban area because they are drought tolerant. They can take a wide range of soils. And they're, of course, evergreen conifers that are native to our region. So they're adapted to the climate writ large. I feel like you're gearing up for a high score here. I'm, I might be gearing up for a high score. They're just, every time I see one, the, like when I first saw the biggest ones I've ever seen, it just blew my mind. Mm. And I was like, this is, I didn't even know they got this big. Yeah. Oh my God. So the instant cedar, I think I'm going to give an 8.8. Wow. Right there. Very right nice. Right there almost at the top. You know, they, they don't get quite so extraordinary as like a cowrie or a really wild species of ancient other tree. So mm-hmm. I, I can't quite push it up too high. But they're in, they're in that upper, what do we say? The upper... Uh the upper in the middle of the upper half or yeah whatever. yeah that sounds good yeah, yeah. yeah they're in there they're in that percentile that everyone's respecting but yeah. doesn't quite j- drop your jaw totally you know? now whenever you see one out in the wild go give it a hug whenever you see one in oh, the yeah. urban area give it a big thumbs up like they're just they're good trees we should plant more of them in our region i don't know how well they'll do outside of the pacific northwest mm-hmm. or kind of the california uh floristic province sure. but spectacular trees i highly recommend you go find them and don't smell their leaves thinking oh the incense cedar this is going to smell really good don't do that they don't they don't actually smell that great the wood is the thing the that smells wood. good right the wood smells yeah. good yeah the branches themselves are kind of a, a kind of the they're they're kind of the the uh, how do i put this mm. They're the used up portion. You know, like you get, you get like a nice, a nice thing. It smells really good, but you have to chop it up and you're like, okay, this, it's like the milk's cow, cow's milk where you have the cream, mm-hmm. which is the really good stuff. And you have the milk and then you, you have whatever's left over at the bottom when you like kind of the, dump all the milk out. The whey or something. Yeah. Or it's, it's like, uh, I, I, I understand what okay, you're saying. Casey. What, if you understand then everyone else out there <laughs> must understand as well. <laughs> It's it's not bad, but to it's quote, not the good you want. To quote Jerry Seinfeld, if it moves this along, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're moved along. We're moved along. <laughs> That's my thoughts on the Instant Cedar, Alex. Wonderful. Do you have do you have any opinions to share? Well, I didn't know that they they were used to make Ticonderoga pencils, and I am a 
massive, massive fan of all writing utensils. Really? Especially number two Ticonderogas. What about those comically large ones? I love them. Okay. The ones that you would use for like, uh, you would buy a teacher as kind of a gag gift. Yeah, yeah. Or you like you, you would fill out one of those giant checks with. Oh, you, know? <laughs> you have to use a giant pen. That's my assumption, right? Is that is <laughs> I, that? I feel like there, I've seen a sketch like that <laughs> where they're going to sign a giant check and they have to bring in a giant pen. Yeah, okay. That makes um, sense. That's that, hmm? Yeah, I I love uh, any tree that smells good. I love mm. I love false cedars, Casey. Oh, really? I think we should just take it back and be like, these are no longer false cedars. These are just like cypresses or whatever. Wow. Like I or or what have you. What? Um, take. I just don't. I you know saying something as a false something is immediately makes it feel less like interesting or valuable than you know. The real one. That's but they a very are, good point. They are a real version of themselves. They they're are like, a real tree. Yeah, they're yeah. trees. Um, so I do think we should we should think about that. Um, boy, you know the overall form of it. I think is just okay. Um, I I think big uh, false cedars are kind of just okay looking uh-huh. as a, as an entire tree. Interesting. A little so, moppy, a little, you know, yeah. uh, here and there. You like you like them overall, but you think their form is just okay. I think so, okay. yeah. Um so for that reason, I'm going for a 7.25. 7.25. Which I think is also very respectable. It's really it is. It's respectable. 7.25. It's no 5. 7 and a quarter. That's right. All right. That was our review. Of the incense cedar, it is time for our completely arbitrary Q and A. This one comes from Emily Case. Hello, Emily. Emily says, "Do you know of any good tree-related citizen science projects that tree enthusiasts could get involved with?" Uh. Thank you. I'm imagining there's a website that's like Naturalist or something. Yeah, iNaturalist. Is that a thing? It is. Is that's, that what this is? That is the first thing that came to my mind. Okay. Yes. Uh, there's there's a there's quite a few where exactly Emily is at. They may change or they may exist. They may not. But nationally, internationally, um, iNaturalist is one that I highly recommend. Um, it is a online database where experts and lay people of all sorts will mm-hmm. take pictures of a plant, a tree, an animal, you name it, and it will when you upload that photo rather. The website will take the exact location data that is mm. captured along with your your individual shot, and it will say, oh, great, yeah, we can actually confirm this picture was taken right here, so we know that this animal was spotted right here. Interesting. And then that will help scientists basically figure out what are the ranges of different plants and animals, how do they change, and where are we seeing these today? Because cool. yeah, not everyone's going to be out... Uh, scientifically looking at all these different plants. However, some of them may be uh, something that nobody knew about. They took a picture of an interesting tree and say, hey, look at this cedar. Mm. And then someone looks at it and they're like, oh my God, that's a cedar that shouldn't be there. No one knew that was growing cool. there. Then they can either expand the range or find that there's a unique population that still exists, things like that. The next great discovery could be... Uh, could be there. An upload away. Exactly. Or the great <laughs> discovery of like, well, we didn't even know it was on these mountains. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I, I, so th- this is basically like a user-generated database. Yeah. 
of locations of plants and animals. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And then it's usually also um, perused by experts who go through and say, ah, oh, well, no, that's actually this tree, it's actually that tree, it's mm. this bird, it's that bird. Oh, it's like Wikipedia has editors. To, to an extent, yeah, okay. but I don't think it's anyone can just edit it. I think it has yeah, to be someone yeah. particular. I think Wikipedia is the same way. Yeah, and they also, these experts will say that you can, they'll say that's like science grade is what they call it, mm. or research grade, I think. So if you take a picture that's good enough that is very clearly identified I believe this thing they'll call it research grade and that way it gets the mark that says that scientists can actually use that where it's valid enough and sure wow. enough that they can say yes this is a scientifically accurate um, data point that you may use well, that's cool. elsewhere wow so, there's one great example. Yeah. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is one that, like, say, Hoyt Arboretum and volunteers get involved with. And it's called, uh, I think it's like Operation Bud Break or something like that. Mm. And it's essentially a citizen scientist opportunity for people to get involved with the phenology of a, of a certain ecosystem. So, for instance, they say uh, in Hoyt, when do these particular plants first break their buds and put out new leaves or flowers or whatever it is? Then you go out and you constantly walk around, you look at these trees and you say, ah, it happened this day at this time, or usually not this time, just this day. Mm. And that way they can track when different plants are doing different things and how their uh, yearly cycles can kind of shift over the over the decades so that we know phenology oh. or rather the phenology of this space and how it's changing with say climate change or wow. something like that phenology so, being the cycle of uh pollination and flowering and yeah not necessarily pollination just the the uh, seasonal uh changes in yeah, plants that's that's what i meant yeah and meaning to say gotcha just, yeah. yeah then you are spot on no. um aside from that there are lots of opportunities uh that people can get involved with um through a lot of independent local things and a lot of them are like um, identifying mushrooms or just uploading data to a certain database if you find something. Mm. Um, but there are so many and so varied that I can't really give you any good examples. But the best thing that I could recommend is reaching out to an extension service in your area, yeah. reaching out to a professional or local group, like a mycological group or something like that. And they will say, yeah, we're actually just collecting data or they know who is collecting data and they can kind of connect you. So it'll take just a little bit of sleuthing, but once you find it, you'll be able to figure out what they want, how they want it. And then you can add your uh, observations to their data sets. Interesting. I'm, I'm assuming there are a lot of these different things and they've, there's a spectrum of uh, uh, locality. Like some are probably really hyper local, yeah. you know, maybe for like an arboretum or then there's like iNaturalist, which is like whole world worldwide. Yeah, exactly. Um, how about, how about this calling an art, calling an arboretum? Yeah. And asking about asking about this. Definitely be like, hey, is there anything? Do you guys any have any projects like this? Yeah. I just want to get involved and get outside. Go yeah. Some trees. That'd be fun. That'd be a fun yeah. kind of hobby. Yeah, right. Like, take pictures of trees for iNaturalist. Exactly. And a lot of people get really into it because it also helps people identify it. So if you post yeah. something on iNaturalist and say, hey, what is this? I think that some people can come and say, this is actually this variety or cool. this species. So you can get like as my is uh, is very specific as you as you ever want. That's great. 
great. But yeah, I highly encourage you just exploring out there for that. Uh, I know a lot of universities are really looking for this uh, because they don't have the funding always to put the data out there to get the data that is out there. Yeah. So anyone who's willing to help, as long as they can ensure it's of a certain quality, then they're usually into it. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, thank you, Emily, for that very interesting question. There you are. If you've got a question for us, join up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash arbitrary pod. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, the Patreon's the best way. The Cone of the Month Club. Every month you get cone stickers of different species illustrated by different artists every month. This month, it is November. This month we have the Sugi. Yeah, we do. Jap- Jap- uh, Cryptomeria japonica. It's so gorgeous. It's beautiful. Otherwise known as the Japanese cedar if you are out here, but it's the same kind of cedar as our incense cedar. Wow. Is it a cedar? No. Japanese hyphen cedar? Yeah, you can do that. You can do that. It's cool. in its own... Uh, no. Yeah, mono, monotypic genus, but it's in the Cypress family. Oh, Whew, gosh, nice. Almost really. <laughs> I'm glad you were in charge of that, not me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Holy hell. If you get to the end of your month and you realize that the education, hopefully the entertainment, although that jury's still out, that we gave you that month is worth $5, $10. Consider joining the Patreon and supporting this podcast. Every dollar goes back into making the podcast. And we really appreciate all of our supporters all across the globe. Yes, we do. And we want you to be one of them. We would adore to have you. Casey Clapp. Alex Crosen. We have a very special theme month coming up. We do. But this concludes our little mini theme our little Fortnite theme on conservation and yes. preservation. I like doing Fortnite Fortnite themes. I do too. I just like using the term Fortnite. It, it is it is now synonymous with the video game, unfortunately. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I can't I, hear those words and not think the video game. Well, then let's say it enough until it breaks that. I think we could be the ones to take it down, Casey. I think we can. I think we can. <laughs> I, uh, the only thing I always think, well, I, I just generally like the term. Yeah. But I always think about um, the old comedian Dimitri Martin. You oh, remember yes. that guy? I sure do. Well, he had a joke one time. He said, you know, I, whenever something happens, I, I wait two weeks to tell someone about it so I can use the term Fortnite. Nice. And I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> Dimitri Martin, you're so, so boring. And I love it so much. <laughs> wonder where he is now. I don't know. Drawing circles with both hands at the same time, I assume. That's right. God, he's going places. And with that, we say thank you so much for listening to this episode of Completely Arbitrary. We will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Completely Arbitrary is produced by Alex Croson and Casey Clapp. Our artwork is by Jillian Barthold, and our music is by Aves and the Mini Vandals. And you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash arbitrarypod. And find additional readings at completelyarbitrary.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>